Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 75, Søren Kierkegaard. I've never really felt like I've had heroes, and even that word bugs me. It doesn't seem appropriate because you can so often place the word worship after it, and I generally prefer a horizontal approach to my fellow humans. So let's say look up to or admire, even though the list remains short. Let me look back in time for a moment because I think that if I'm going to use the word hero, It applies to our formative years. I think my first childhood hero was Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. He occupied a great deal of real estate in my young imagination. Man, just saying his name gives me goosebumps. There were three cosmonauts selected for that first journey. None of them knew who would be chosen on the morning of the launch. Their vital signs and their sleep would be monitored throughout the night, and the decision about which one would indeed be the first person in space would be made. Gagarin stayed up all night, controlling his breathing so as to make it look like he was sleeping soundly. He got selected. Young Michael thought that was so cool. In the introduction to episode one, (laughs) way back in the day in this podcast, I mention Hemingway. He remains someone I admire. Then there are a few actors whose work I admire playing roles that inspire me. There are sports stars who captured or capture my imagination with their dazzling play. The shortlist combining those two categories seems to be populated by outliers, personalities, people who don't fear being themselves within the somewhat stiff framework of their professions. Then there are other film directors and writers and artists. Actors and athletes can be complex and talented, but they excel at a craft. Film directors, writers, and artists They create entire intricate worlds with hidden cave systems and ever-shifting landscapes painted with thought and emotion. We can be amazed at the prowess of a football player with the perfect combination of physical training, instinct, and lightning reaction times. With a bit of work, we think, huh, I could almost do the amazing thing that they just did. Just look at how people shout at the players on the television in any sport. Dude, you moron, how could you miss that shot? Or, oh, that other guy is totally open, man. Pass it, pass it, pass it. Oh, man. As though the spectator could have done better. I'm often guilty of that myself. But film directors, writers, and artists, we are left more in awe. Left to wonder about what deep, hidden processes led to the creation of the work or specific characters they invent and the individual themselves resigned to the fact that we could maybe create something vaguely similar, but never exactly the same thing. My yardstick for people I admire is simple. Would I want to drink with them? Most of the people on my list are people I would want to sit down with and open a bottle, probably more than one, and talk the night away. This is not only reserved for actual humans. There are characters in literature and cinema who fit the bill as well. Just meeting someone I admire doesn't cut it. Think about it. You run into a celebrity or a sports star or whatever on the street. You met them. You got to say, oh my God, I love your work. And they say, thanks. You say, oh, that film you made, that goal you scored means a lot to me. They say, thanks. Maybe 
there's a selfie. And we're done. The event might mean a lot to us, emotionally, but nothing really happened. So I like to imagine drinking with them. Even when looking at politicians, the same applies. When determining who to vote for, I wonder what they'd be like to drink with. Could I sit down with them and have a normal human conversation? This yardstick makes my list even shorter, but also much more detailed. If you could go back in time to a specific point in history, where would you go? I like playing these kinds of games and conversations with people. I have loads of periods in history I would love to experience. I've thought about this one for many years, but I've narrowed it down to two. First of all, some point in the early 1920s. Paris. Probably the dingo bar, but I'm flexible. Hanging out with the lost generation. Hemingway, Steinbeck, Joyce, Pound, Elliot, Picasso, the Fitzgeralds. I probably wouldn't come back. But secondly, and more likely, I would choose Copenhagen at some point in the late 1830s or early 1840s deep in the bosom of the Danish Golden Age, a period of extraordinary creative production. Inside the small, dense, and walled city, some of the greatest minds in the history of this country bumped into each other on the street regularly. They ate and drank together and inspired one another. But the reason for choosing this period revolves around one person, Søren Kierkegaard. And I'll anglicize his last name for clarity, Søren Kierkegaard. I get it that it's a bit odd that I will miss a person who died in 1855 when I, myself, am dead. But for whatever reason, I find that I identify with him more than any of these other people that I admire. In second place is probably the character of Hank Moody from the Californication series. But let's stick to Søren. For more than a couple of decades, in periods where I am sad, or down and out, or depressed, I ride my bike to one of two places either the statue of Kierkegaard in the Rose Gardens next to the Danish Parliament or to his family grave in the Nørrebro neighborhood. I don't know why. I just do it. Just sort of stand there for a while, thinking about the man and my own personal issues. It's soothing and therapeutic. Back in 2020, during a thorough cleanup of my home, like everybody else during COVID, I found a large pile of paper in a box. It was like being on an archaeological dig in the ruins of my own creative life. The papers were research material and the workings of a film script dating from the early 2000s. It had been in that box for almost 20 years. I had the idea back then to write a screenplay about Kierkegaard, and I spent more than six months researching in detail, ending up with the framework for the film. Interestingly, there's never been a proper film about this man, and I have a theory as to why that is. Kierkegaard is one of history's greatest thinkers and philosophers, later called the father of existentialism, no less. His thoughts and words have inspired generations of philosophers and continue to be analyzed in the greatest detail by academics all over the world, not least at the Kierkegaard Institute in Copenhagen, who pore over his works and journals, studying every detail, looking for clues as to who this man really was deep down inside. So much so that the human behind the words really has been forgotten. Kierkegaard, the human, was hijacked by academia. The brand that has emerged around Kierkegaard is serious and stuffy. If he were alive today, however, let me tell you, Søren Kierkegaard wouldn't be a stodgy university professor or a recluse writer. He was the life of the party, with razor-sharp wit and a lively personality. He would be one of our greatest thinkers, but he would also be a George Carlin or 
are Ricky Gervais. As often happens in the fanciful film and television industry, my screenplay was never produced, and I wandered off to other projects. Last year, I sat down and read my long synopsis of the film I planned to write for the first time in many years. I knew I had written it, but I couldn't put it down. I cried at the end. My storyline was different than you'd expect. It focused on the most important catalyst in Kierkegaard's life. The French philosophy giant Georges Deleuze stated that there would never have been a CERN Kierkegaard without Regina Olson, the love of his life. To understand Kierkegaard, we must understand the story of his love for Regina and the massive sacrifices he made for his art. We must explore the man behind his carefully tailored and fabricated facade, expose his frailty and his simple human need for love. The drama surrounding their relationship is central to the understanding of Kierkegaard's existentialism because Regina remained, as he said himself, an essential subject for him throughout his life. He gave up his one true love in order to think and write and change the world, and yet she remained integral to his life, as he tells us, from his deathbed. She was the one I loved. My existence must unconditionally accentuate her life. My writing should be considered a monument to her honor and memory. I carry her with me into history. They were engaged, but then Kierkegaard's creative angst made him try to break it off, despite his love for her. He thought he would be a burden on her, but she insisted that she understood him and would stand by him. In that age, if a man in that social class broke off an engagement with a young woman, it reflected very badly on her, and her marriage prospects would be negatively impacted. So it was up to her to break it off with him. But she refused. Kierkegaard started to commit character assassination of his own person, starting negative rumors about himself that spread like wildfire in the small city, forcing her to take the high road and finally leave him in order to preserve her honor. She saw right through his game, but at the end of the day, she was forced to break it off. He was despised in Copenhagen because of the situation and right after he left for Berlin, where he sat down and wrote Either Or. And that's what started his journey as an important writer and thinker. All in all, it's the greatest love story never told. A simple story of love, but also the tale of a tortured, brilliant, and creative mind battling with the human emotion of love. A man loving so hard and yet unable to love because of a need to think and write. A strong, intelligent woman who understood him and who tried to keep their love alive. Søren Kierkegaard was a member of the bourgeoisie in Copenhagen. Nevertheless, he could easily integrate into working-class settings and even thrived on it. He enjoyed what he called to menskabel, his own Danish word, which translates to bathing in humans. He would go to dive bars on the harbor and hang out with captains and sailors in order to hear what real people have to say. You might recall from the segment about being naked that Kierkegaard had a habit of sitting naked in his apartment and speaking foreign languages when he was feeling melancholy, which was often. I've borrowed that tactic, too, on occasion. I've read most of what he wrote, and it has had an impact on my life but not as much as knowing what the man was actually like. Kierkegaard died far too young, at 42 years old, on Sunday, November 18, 1855. He had regained his reputation by then and was incredibly popular in the city. A thousand people solemnly followed his casket to the graveyard, a remarkable number of people for that age, 
and a mix of the bourgeois and the working classes. A month or so after, Regina is sitting in her little office in the governor's mansion on St. Croix in the Danish Virgin Islands. She ended up marrying another suitor, Fritz Schlegel, who was a governor of the islands at the time, but they had never had children. She received a letter about Søren's last will and testament, wherein he wrote, It is, of course, my will that my former fiancée, Mrs. Regina Schlegel, shall inherit the few things I leave behind. What I wish to express is that, in my mind, an engagement is just as obligating as a marriage, and therefore I leave her everything I have, just as though I were married to her. This guy, man, this guy, one of the people in history, dead or alive, that I admire the most, a person who continues to give me so much personal inspiration. I've never really explained this to anyone in such great detail as this segment of the podcast. Rereading the script, I feel like there is so much depth to my relationship to him, but I also feel like I've already said too much. The rest will remain with me. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel-Anderson. Thanks for being out there. <laughs>